you got a Bible, you can go ahead and find Galatians chapter three. That's uh, one of the letters that the apostle Paul wrote to a group of churches. It's in the New Testament. You can get to the gospels and keep turning right and you'll eventually run into Galatians. We've been walking through these various gods in our culture and we're doing that for a couple of important reasons. One, we wanna highlight, we wanna point out We want you guys to have sobriety as you go about your day, that even though the Western world is increasingly secular, even though more and more people define themselves as nuns, people with no religious affiliation, even though in a lot of different contexts, the church in the West is shrinking and declining, the reality is Americans and Europeans aren't becoming less religious. It's just that the allegiance of our hearts is shifting to different gods. The gods that we worship in our culture are gods that are really subtle. They're really dangerous because you practice worshiping these gods in ways that you don't even know you're worshiping. Their temples are invisible. Their prophets don't claim to be speaking about divine things. Their liturgies and their sacrifices are everyday liturgies and sacrifices. All around us, there's a pantheon of gods that tell beautiful lies They promise to make your life better. They promise to answer the deep questions you have about identity. They promise to give you security. They promise to give you comfort. And the problem with all of these little G gods is that they're liars. They're liars. They can't change you. They can't save you. They can't redeem you. And one of the beautiful things about Jesus Christ the son of God that was born of a virgin and took on flesh and lived the perfect life that we can't and went to the cross to carry the shame and the pain and the punishment of our sin, who rose from the dead historically, not in terms of mythology and mere sort of human uh, poetry, but who really literally came back from the dead and appeared at one point to 500 people at one time. The thing about that Jesus And what he taught and what he did and what he's doing is that he loves you so darn much, he's willing to confront the gods that promise freedom and give you bondage. He's willing to confront those gods. Now, today we get to talk about a God that's on the rise in our culture. It's the God of politics. Yes. Isn't that fun to get to talk about politics in church? Aren't you happy that I've been working on this sermon for a week and losing sleep over this? See, In the early days of church planting, talking about controversial stuff felt really fun to me. Uh, I'm a pretty passionate guy and I'm not afraid when it's in line with scripture to get in people's business and talk about the claims of Jesus. But the older I get, the more I dread these kind of conversations. I don't wanna talk about controversial stuff. I don't wanna hurt your feelings. I used to like preaching sermons that I, I call seat makers. And I've lost that love right? I I don't want to have to field a bunch of emails from hurt people and angry people. I, I don't want the controversy and the difficulty, but here's the deal. The older I get, the more I realize that that's the job of a pastor that loves his people. It's the job of a pastor that loves his people to lead us into conversations that we'd rather not have, to point out gods that we don't even know are gods. And so today, as we talk about politics, I think what you're going to find is that the end game where we're going with this is not less political engagement in the world, and it's not attaching Jesus to one particular political party. What we're trying to fight for today is the people of God being citizens of God's kingdom. And as citizens of God's kingdom under the authority of the king, Jesus, that we would engage in all fields of culture, 
in the arts, in business, in medicine, in ethics, and in the political arena with boldness and courage as we follow Jesus and as we try to think deeply about what his will is in our day and in our age. So as we kick this thing off, let me give you a few challenges as we, as we think about the God of politics in our culture. Here's some challenges that we face. One, post-Christian culture isn't the same as pre-Christian culture. Now, here's what I mean by that. Post-Christian culture is the culture that we're increasingly living in in the West. Now, we're still in the Bible Belt. There's still a lot of churches. But here's what you're going to find over the next five to ten years. The influences of secularization, right? The, The push to become a more and more secular society and culture, that influence, that push is increasingly strong and it's changing even the Bible Belt's. It's changing the Bible Belt. We are in a post-Christian moment in culture. And by post-Christian, I don't mean pre-Christian. I don't mean pre-Christian. See, pre-Christian culture is what the Apostle Paul was preaching in when he went to pagan cities like Athens. That's pre-Christian. They had never heard the gospel. There was never such a thing as Christendom in their culture. There were all kinds of gods and all kinds of goddesses. And Paul went and preached the gospel to pagans in language that the pagans could understand. And he brought them truths, some of which they really didn't like. He did that work in pre-Christian culture. Now, over time, what happened is more and more people met Jesus, and as people of influence met Jesus, folks like the Emperor Constantine, we moved from pre-Christian to Christian culture, Christendom, Christendom. Christians had influence. Christians had a measure of say in political affairs. Christians were involved in the institutions of society, right? That's been the case in the West for a really long time. Now, in this cultural moment, this post-Christian culture that we live in is not pre-Christian because here's the thing that's really subtle and really important. Pre-Christian culture is not actively resisting the doctrines of Christ and the way of Jesus because they've never heard it. Post-Christian culture is not just neutral and open. Post-Christian culture says, hey man, we tried that. It didn't work. It's actively hostile to the things of Jesus actively hostile. But here's what's fascinating. Post-Christian culture, it's been said, wants to maintain some of the fruit of the kingdom without the authority of the king. So there's things that Christian teaching is brought into culture. And if you're an atheist or an agnostic, I would just challenge you to think deeply about what are the roots of things in our culture that you think are really beautiful. Things like human dignity, If you went back to pagan culture, even if you went back to what we consider sort of the classical period of Greece and Rome, here's what you'd find. They may have been doing a lot of work in philosophy, but they sure weren't caring for the poor. They sure didn't give a rip about the orphan. Those things that we take for granted as part of being an enlightened culture, caring for the disenfranchised, giving a voice to the voiceless, thinking about the marginalized. Those are things that are all fruit of the gospel taking root in a culture. Human dignity is a result of the work of Jesus. So we live in this culture today where we want some of the work of the kingdom, but we don't want to bow our knee to the king. This happens in a lot of different ways. And one of the big ways it's happening, and this is why politics is becoming more and more the religion of the West Christian culture brought with it a hopeful view of history. There's this geeky Christian word, and it's part of my job to help you learn some geeky Christian words so that you can win at Bible Scrabble. Uh, 
this geeky Christian word is eschatology. All right, eschatology is the study of end times or last things. And there's a lot of different takes on eschatology. There's really weird guys that have charts and graphs and they tell you exactly when Jesus is gonna come back. I think those guys are a little weird. Uh, There's all kinds of different takes on eschatology in the history of the church. But here's what all the takes had in common. The end of history is Jesus winning. And Jesus winning means that there's a new heavens and a new earth, which means that injustice is ultimately banished. Sickness, sin, and death is ultimately banished. It means that things that destroy people are ultimately banished. Christian, Christian eschatology looked at history and said, hey man, sometimes things are really dark. Sometimes things seem to be evolving and getting better, but no matter what happens, whether it's dark or it's beautiful in history, history is moving to a destination that's gonna be beautiful. Now, in post-Christian culture, we still want to have a hopeful view of history, but we've removed Jesus. We don't want the king, and so we're putting all of our trust in human progress. We've become humanist. We're like, well, of course history is gonna get better. We're getting better at technology. We're getting better at education. Man, we're getting better at figuring out how to solve the water crisis worldwide. We're getting better at coming up with medicines. We're making life more and more comfortable. And so what we've done is we want a hopeful view of history without the king of history. And the problem, the problem as it relates to politics is the way in which we're banking on our political aspirations and our political parties to bring the hopeful future that we really want. So when you bank on politics to bring the end game of history, what starts to happen is politics become more and more religious. Like it takes a special constitution to look at history with the cynicism of a nihilist and be okay at that right? Like there's few people that can look at history and say, yeah, everything sucks and it's going to get worse. And that's just what it is. Let's smoke some clove cigarettes and listen to Cure albums, right? There's, there's not a lot of people that can stomach that. And so what we've done is we've loaded all of our hopes for history into the political arena. And that's caused us to practice politics more and more as a religion. And so what happens, listen, is identity politics on the left and the right become more and more strong. People become more and more polarized. It's more and more venomous. Political ideologies are more and more taking a chunk of reality and ignoring the rest of reality, right? People are more and more violent because what's at stake is not just my political persuasion that's gonna help increase the common good. What's at stake is, man, this is my religion. This is what I'm banking on for the hope of humanity. And in the midst of that, man, at the midst of that, we, we want control in a chaotic world, don't we? Like, let's just admit, we don't wanna look down the barrel at a really scary, chaotic world and say, well, I don't know. I'm small, I trust in God. We wanna be able to trust in something that we can control, that we can organize. Now, the second challenge is not just that politics are becoming the religion of the day. The second challenge is that politics have always been really complicated for followers of Jesus. It's really complicated. And I admit, man, like I'm still trying to sort out what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in the kingdom of God, the city of God, and to be a active participant in the city of man. How do you wrestle with that? Deep thinkers like St. Augustine wrote whole giant books about that. It's really complicated to figure out what does it look like to be a Christian and engage in a helpful way. And what tends to happen for Christians throughout history and cultures is that we keep falling into two big traps. 
And the traps are, as it relate to politics, we either withdraw in cynicism or, or we practice idolatry of politics. We withdraw in cynicism. How, how many people, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many people would consider yourself a follower of Jesus and our political system is so discouraging at times and it's so venomous at times that you've just thrown up your hands and you've said, well, I'm just gonna follow Jesus and not engage the political process. Right? So many of us have done that and that's been happening throughout history. In fact, here's what's crazy. We think that Jesus can bring redemption into the areas of the arts into the areas of business, into the areas of philanthropy. We think that Jesus can move deeply in the institutions of family, but then when it comes to the political sphere, we're like, oh yeah, Jesus can't do anything there. And we just opt out, we opt out. Now the other side is equally destructive. That's when Christians get so enmeshed with politics that instead of really loving and worshiping Jesus, we really are hoping on our political persuasion to actually bring the ends of the world that people are hoping for. This happens on the right, right? I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the sort of moral majority in the US. They got really political in some really toxic ways, man. They, they used politics kind of a hammer to beat people. They, they kind of forgot the gospel in the midst of that. It happens on the left with various liberation theologies, right? Like the gospel of Jesus produces some things that are really beautiful. It produces liberation. It produces freedom. It produces a deconstruction of racism. But on the left, sometimes the gospel gets reduced to liberation without liberation from sin. That's becoming too enmeshed with politics. And in addition, it's challenging for Christians because here's what I want you to get as your pastor. You're not just being formed in the image of Jesus as you get together once a week to worship. You're also being formed the other six days of the week and the formation that's happening the other six days of the week is cranked up to 13 right now, right? Because of the increase of technology and 24 hour news cycles, here's what's happening. You leave this building and you're being formed. Your loves are being directed. Your affections are being shaped. Your values are being crafted by a world that's actually hostile to Jesus. In the church in the West, there's less commitment to the regular gathering of, our, of ourselves together in church, which means that more and more people attend church once or twice a month. And in the midst of attending church once or twice a month, here's the challenge for your pastors. We can't keep up with your spiritual formation with the malformation that the world's doing to you. You're thinking more and more like the culture in which we live. Third challenge I'll mention before we get to Galatians is that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you take an honest view of our political moment, you can admit that virtue is missing in the public square. Now, thanks be to God that there are still leaders out there that are virtuous leaders, but here's what we experienced. Here's what I experienced. I won't speak for you. Here's what I experienced personally in the last presidential election. I looked at two candidates that both, if you could be honest, seem to have a massive lack of some of the basic virtues that we would hope to have in the most important, powerful political leader in the world. Both of them had some differences on political philosophy and ideologies, but they had a lot in common, a lot in common. Both of them seem to be allergic to the truth. And both of them seem to be really addicted to power and willing to do anything to hang on to it. What's happening? Well, basic virtues are missing. 
the ancients and then the church later talked about the virtues of prudence, which is just living in wisdom. Like prudence is just living in light of reality. We've lost that skill as Americans. Temperance. Temperance is not being mastered by God's gifts, but using his gifts in ways that are good and not enslaving. Fortitude, which is strength and commitment to do the right thing, no matter what the cost. This is a value of virtue that's missing in our culture. Justice, which is about treating all people as neighbors. Justice is missing in our public engagement. In the midst of that, all the institutions that primarily form virtue seem to be decaying. The two biggest ones are the church, the church and family. We're not doing a good job of forming virtue. And so what we have in the world, what we have in the world is a lack of integrity that seems to be on the rise. Now, the fourth challenge, and this is where it gets really close to home. The fourth challenge is just the worldliness of the church. It's the worldliness of the church. Our faith is always called to be a scandal to the world and the world is called to be a scandal to our faith. Here's what I mean by that. In in the early church, Christians saying Jesus is Lord was scandalous to the Roman empire because Jesus is not Lord, Caesar's Lord. Christians being willing to die, being willing to die to lay down their lives because of their unwillingness to worship Caesar as God and make sacrifices to Caesar, the world looked at that and they were scandalized by it. They were like, hey, just worship Caesar and still worship Jesus. Don't just worship Jesus, you idiot. You have everything to lose and nothing to gain. Christians' faith was scandalous to the world and the world was scandalous to Christians. Meaning Christians would look at the world and they'd be like, you're, you can't do that with your body in the worship of pagan deities, having sex with prostitutes in temples. That's scandalous. You can't treat the poor like that. You can't walk on the poor. You can't leave the sick to just die because you're so terrified of getting the plague on you. You have to go towards suffering. And so in, in the church, when the church is healthy, friends, listen, when the church is healthy, Our faith is a scandal to the world and the world is a scandal to our faith. Now in our cultural moment, we're not really scandalous to anybody because we think like the world and we love like the world and we live like the world. And we're so enmeshed with the world that the world's not really scandalous to us anymore. So before we get into some good news, let me help you try to diagnose if you might be worshiping the God of politics. Let me give you three diagnostic tools. Diagnostic tool number one, if you experience intense fear, and I'm not just talking about a little bit of mild anxiety, but if you experience intense fear around the realm of politics, you're probably worshiping the false God of politics. Here's what happens in America. Um, People's guy or gal doesn't get elected. And what do you instantly hear people saying? I'm moving to Australia, (laughs) right? They just hit the panic button, man. They're like, I'm out. Everything is going to crumble. Thanks, Obama. And now it's thanks, Trump. Am I right? And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that what you worship is connected to what you love. And there's nothing more terrifying than losing what you most deeply love. Is it wrong? Is it wrong to have your party lose power and you'd be really disappointed? No, because you believe that their ideologies are more lined up with reality. That's not wrong to be disappointed. Is it wrong to be devastated and to panic? Yes. Yes. 
Because you're supposed to be a follower of Jesus, worshiping Jesus, the king of the universe, not banking in temporal systems to be the ultimate answer. See, God's offer security and God's hold power at all costs. And so when you lose one of those gods, what happens? Terror, terror. And and I would love to just basically take like the next 10 minutes and highlight some of your guys' social media accounts and talk about this, but that would be too personal. I won't do that. Second diagnostic tool. How do you know if you might be worshiping the God of politics? Um, You're prone to demonizing your opponents. You're prone to demonizing your opponents. Now, is it wrong to have sharp disagreements with people across the political spectrum? No, that's not wrong. Actually, helpful, vigorous debate is really important. It's really important. Now, good debate should be actually not creating straw men that you then just tear apart. If you're gonna debate ideas, you should offer the most charitable explanation of your opponent's views, and then you should point out why you totally disagree. And you should do it thoughtfully. It shouldn't just be a hot take on Twitter, right? But here's what happens in our culture because politics are connected to our gods and our love so deeply. We have to demonize people that we disagree with. We can't just sharply disagree. This is why, this is why Republicans by a lot of Democrats are called a basket of deplorables because they can't even imagine a universe where you would hold to the values that you hold in your political persuasion. This is why so many Republicans refer to Democrats as commie nut jobs. Some of you Democrats are like, they call us that? They do. They call you that. They call you that a lot. And that's not to say that there aren't some Republicans that are, that are deplorable or that there aren't some Democrats that are actually commie nut jobs. But when your basic posture of engagement is demonizing those that you disagree with, what's happening is it's actually revealing more about you and what you worship. And here's the biggest diagnostic. This is the big one. Please hear me, friends, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. If you customize Jesus to perfectly fit your political persuasion, you're worshiping something other than Jesus. Jesus is sometimes way more conservative than liberals. Isn't he? You read some things that Jesus says, man, about like submitting your sexuality to his rule and you're like, man, that guy's a conservative. You read some things Jesus says about truth. Like, if you don't believe me, the hardest words in the New Testament are not written by the apostle Paul. Everybody that hasn't read the Bible, they're like, oh man, Jesus, he was the cool guy to hang out with. The apostle Paul, he's he's the one that says the hard stuff. Dude, read the Sermon on the Mount. It's brutal. Like, I, I want to put on an athletic cup before I read the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> I mean, sometimes Jesus just sounds, he sounds really conservative about truth and sexuality. And then sometimes Jesus is way more liberal than conservatives want to admit. Jesus is talking about crazy levels of generosity and compassion and the way we handle money. And what I want you to get, man, what I want you to get is not, I'm not trying to argue that Christians have to be Republicans or Christians have to be Democrats. I I actually don't believe that. But what I'm trying to argue for, if Jesus never confronts you and your party and your political persuasion, you're probably worshiping your party more than you worship Jesus. If there's not places where you're standing in your party and you're like, hey man, it seems like Jesus is opposed to this particular take in my party or in my own heart. And and I need to actually let Jesus win instead of me win. 
if Jesus never beats out your party, if Jesus never actually wrestles with you to such a degree that you feel like you're limping after your conversation with him, you're probably not worshiping Jesus. So what do we do? Well, listen, this is not a talk where I'm gonna give you four tips and techniques on how to decide various issues. Um, I'm not smart enough to do that and the issues are really complicated, but I wanna start with the foundation. I wanna give you something really helpful if you're a follower of Jesus and, nav- and wanna navigate our political world in a way that's wise. I wanna give you something really helpful. If you're not a Christian, I wanna offer something to you that's way better than the God of politics. So Galatians chapter three, this is a great letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians that were wrestling with grace versus law, grace versus law. And Paul is not writing this little passage that we're gonna read today to specifically address political engagement, but it has tons of application. So let's read it and we'll talk about it. Galatians 3, starting in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've put on Christ. I wanna say it again. Listen to these words. You've put on Christ. This is one of the most important themes in everything that Paul writes in the New Testament, this in-Christing of the Christian. What does that mean? Well, we'll talk about it in a minute. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male, no female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise three things that are foundational if we're gonna be good citizens of the kingdom of God and good participants in the kingdom of man, three things that are essential. Number one, friends, Jesus claims everything. 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 And he's really patient. He's really patient and he's really kind and he's really winsome in his pursuit of the totality of your being. But just understand, Jesus is not a means to an end. He's the end. He wants everything about you. Look at what it says here. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What does this mean? Well, it means in part that the totality of who Jesus is, his person and his work, his death for sinners to atone for sin, his resurrection to defeat death. It means that the core reality of who Jesus is, is ultimate reality. And to love and worship Jesus is this beautiful, mysterious thing that takes the entirety of the New Testament to even unpack in which Christ is in you and you're in him and he defines you at a core reality. He defines your identity He claims allegiance over your life. To put on Christ means that your mind needs to be conformed to Jesus. Your affections need to be conformed to Jesus. It means your identity is not first and foremost as a Republican or a Democrat or a man or a woman or a rich person or a poor person. To be a follower of Jesus means that your total identity overhaul in Christ finds its meaning in, oh man, I'm his. I'm bought with a price. I've been purchased by Jesus. He's mine and I'm his. The core question, who am I? Is not answered by your career. It's not answered 
by your successes or your failures. It's not answered by your family pedigree. The core question, who am I, is answered by being in Christ. Loved, adopted, justified, forgiven, sanctified, and being sanctified. You're in Christ. You're in Christ. And what this means, secondly, is that all your other identities and allegiances are subordinate to Jesus. All your identities, all your allegiances are subordinate to Jesus. Some of them are going to have to go away altogether. Some of them are just going to have to move to the back seat. Here's what it says, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's what's happening. Jesus is tearing down the wall of hostility between God and man by dealing with our sin. But he's also tearing down the walls of hostility between the family of God by making identities that used to be primary, secondary at best. Let me explain what it means like this. Racial and ethnic identity becomes secondary. Not non-existent, but secondary. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Now listen, here's what he's saying here. You're, you're not to find your primary identity in your Jewishness. And that's what Jews did, especially when this letter was written. Who am I? Well, I'm, I'm a Jew. Your primary identity is not found in being Greek, either ethnically or philosophically. Now, what Jesus does is really beautiful. It's something different than erasing your ethnicity. He doesn't erase your ethnicity, but he, he, he demands that your ethnicity and your allegiance to your tribe come under the reality that you belong to Jesus. This is so much better than colorblindness. Colorblindness is the worst take that well-meaning preachers have ever preached. Jesus doesn't want to make you colorblind. To be colorblind is to miss out on the manifold wisdom and beauty of God and the diversity of creation. If you're, if you're African-American in 10 billion years in the kingdom of God, guess what? You're going to still be African-American to the glory of God. Think of all the different cultures in our church, man. I don't want to be colorblind. I want to enjoy the beauty of my East Indian friend's culture. It reflects something of the wisdom of God. I don't, want, I don't want my Native American friends to lose all the beauty of their culture. I want them, I want them to be native because they're going to be native in the kingdom of God even in eternity, and that's good. But all of those identities, though important, all of those realities, all of those cultural dynamics, listen, they're not primary. They become secondary in Jesus. They become secondary in Jesus. Jews in the New Testament didn't cease to be Jews, but they had to submit their rituals and their traditions and their philosophies and their worldview and even their diet to the Lordship of Jesus. Gentiles didn't stop being Gentiles. That was a big debate, right? Do we have to make these Gentiles become Jewish converts to be Christians? Do we need to circumcise the men? The answer of the apostles was no. Praise be to God for that. Amen. Right? You think getting people to get baptized is difficult. <laughs> right? 
But those Jews and those Gentiles, they had to still enjoy their culture, but do it in a way that submitted to Jesus. The second thing that this means is that class and economic identity is secondary. He says there's neither slave nor free. Now, the slavery in in Paul's day and age was not like the particularly perverse slavery that happened in Western culture. It wasn't a race-based slavery. The slavery back then was more of an economic slavery. It was, man, you're, you're, you're really going through hard times and you become sort of a wage. You, because of wages and debt, you become an economic slave. And so what you had in the church is you had wealthy people and you had poor people and they didn't hang out. And the wealthy people looked down on the poor people and the poor people looked at the wealthy people as oppressors. And what Paul says in this text is, hey man, there's neither slave nor free. Now this doesn't erase economic realities. He doesn't say that and you get baptized as a person making minimum wage and you come out of the waters and all of a sudden you you own like a really big high rise in Oklahoma City. No, but here's what happens. The wealthy people in the church are humbled by the gospel of Jesus and the poor people in the church are elevated by the gospel of Jesus. And Paul says, hey man, your economic realities, they're no longer primary, they're secondary. Your primary reality is you belong to Jesus. Thirdly, gender becomes secondary. He says there's neither male nor female. Now, does this mean that he erases gender? Like you get baptized and anatomically you become either like a naked Ken doll or a naked Barbie doll? No, that doesn't happen. He's not erasing gender. There's still, there's still biological realities. There's still relationships and roles that are unique to men and unique to women. The Bible talks about that. But here's what he's saying. Hey, you can't take your gender and make that your primary identity anymore. It's secondary to the Lordship of Jesus. Secondary to the Lordship of Jesus. Now, what does this have to do with politics? Well, everything, everything. Because as a follower of Jesus, the totality of your being, the totality of your identity, the totality of your loves, the the direction of your life is not stuff that you figure out outside of Jesus and then you add Jesus to it on the back end. The complete picture of who you are is submitted and surrendered to Jesus and you offer yourself freely to say, I'll follow you in the church right now, here's what's happening. And I want us to really listen to this and get this. What's happening that's really terrifying because culture is forming you guys so rapidly. You're bringing the kind of political formation of the world into the body of Christ. And here's what I mean by that. Instead of relating to each other as parts of the body, you're relating to each other as opponents often. Instead of figuring out how do I outdo one another in showing love, How do I, as a majority culture Christian, lay down majority culture preferences to welcome in my minority brothers and sisters? How do I lay down, how do I lay down rights and privilege to love and honor one another? Well, the world doesn't say to do that. The world says, hey, those other guys on the other side of the aisle, they're opponents to be warred against. Our culture says all relationships are about power. So now in the church, here's what we start to do. We, we kind of clump together in little power groups vying for power. Instead of relating to the pastors of the church as just shepherds, spiritual leaders that are trying to represent Jesus and love you, we start acting like we're lobbyists. We're lobbyists vying for limited pieces of the pie in the power structures of the church. 
And let me tell you something, man, that's antichrist. That kills our witness to the world. In Jesus, in Jesus, all those things that are real, man, it's not that race disappears when you follow Jesus. It's not that culture disappears when you follow Jesus. It's not that economic realities or gender disappear when you follow Jesus, but all that stuff comes under his lordship and becomes secondary to the primary purpose of following Jesus and making much of him in relationship. Can, can I get an amen? amen. And then the, the thing that happens lastly that informs the way we engage in politics is this means that all of our hope All of our hope is in Jesus. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What this means is that all the promises are yours in Jesus. This means the guarantee of a better country is yours in Jesus. This means that nothing can separate you from the love of the Father in Jesus. This means that you're secure and safe in Jesus. This means that you're free to engage as a citizen in this state and work for the common good in this state, but to do so in a way that's confident and secure no matter which way the political winds blow. You belong to Jesus as he's going to finish what he started. And what this really looks like, like what does it really look like if your identity's in Jesus and you're trusting Jesus what does it really feel like and look like when Christians engage? And I hope you do. I, I hope we have more and more members of our church that run for office and do so as, as overt followers of Jesus. Um, I'm personally convicted about how often I've been cynical and I've opted out at times of voting on important things. I don't want to do that. I want to engage prayerfully. I want you to engage prayerfully. But what will it feel like if people whose identity is defined by Jesus engage? Well, here's what it'll feel like. Faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let me unpack these in closing. Faith, not in your political party, and not in yourself, and not in a vague and uh, frankly historically disputable idea of human progress. You know, when we really thought human progress was going to change the whole world right before world war one and world war two. And then we were like, Oh, you know what? We're getting better at just killing each other. Faith is not in human progress. It's not in you. It's not in your party. It's not, it's not a life of fear being controlled by how dark the days are. Faith, listen, faith is a Godward orientation for life. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of your life and he's Lord of history. He's Lord of this city. To be a follower of Jesus in the political sphere is to be unapologetic and unafraid to say to Caesar, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You might not recognize his Lordship, but he's Lord. And we engage the world under his Lordship. Faith means that we're not to be afraid of being strange to the world and the world being strange to us. Hope, what is hope? In my opinion, in our cultural moment, hope might be the most radical and subversive thing we could do politically. Hope, (laughs) to not get cynical, to do our best to work for the good of our city and work for the good of our state, to do so hopefully not because we're naive about human progress, 
but because we know history is marching towards an end in which Jesus wins. We know that we're called to be salt and light right here. We're called to influence the conversations in a Godward direction. We're called to tell people that Jesus is Lord and submission to Jesus is actually better for their life. And love, the greatest of these three, love, well, the source of this love is God's love. That God's loved you in Jesus, which means that we can love our neighbors. Engaging the political process as a follower of Jesus, not a worshiper of the God of politics, is realizing that civic engagement is a way that you love your neighbors. Why should you run for office if you run for office? Because God's loved you so much, you want to love your neighbors really well. You want to serve your neighbors. And serving and loving your neighbors is not, listen, it's not sentimental love that never says any hard things to anybody. If you love your neighbors and there was a fad in the U.S. where people were really excited about cyanide, Cyanide's great, isn't it? Oh, cyanide's the new trend. We love cyanide. I'm so glad that we're free to use as much cyanide as we want. (laughs) If you really loved your neighbors, you'd have to stand up and say, hey, you know what? I love you. Cyanide's bad for you. And I oppose the legalization of cyanide. And I appreciate, I appreciate personal liberties to pursue happiness. Appreciate that. But cyanide is bad. And I love you so much, I'm going to yell from the top of my lungs, I oppose cyanide poisoning in all of its forms and uses. See, to really love people, and you could fill in a thousand different things as we engage in the political sphere, to really love people is not just to have a sentimental version of love. It's sometimes to say really hard things to people you care about. So, this is a sermon where I feel like I've fallen short in serving you in a thousand different ways. There's a thousand different things that I don't understand and knots I don't know how to untie to help you figure out how to engage as a follower of Jesus. But here's what I hope you come away with. You come away with one thing. Jesus confronts cynical withdrawal from citizenship. He confronts it because he wants you to love your neighbors. And Jesus confronts idolatrous over-identification with any one political movement because ultimately you belong to a king. And that king gets to call balls and strikes. That king demands that you do the hard work of thinking through the ethics of your position in light of scripture. And that king demands, that king demands that the ethos of his kingdom is love. And especially in here, We're not going to treat each other like constituents that we're competing with for a piece of the pie. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. We're going to figure out how to outdo one another in showing honor. 